Hi, Scott here. Just popped by at the top of the show to say this episode was recorded several weeks ago in the wake of the sad news of the passing of Ian Holm. Now, this episode was set out as a tribute to the great man himself, but since recording, we've also lost another great British actor and star of this movie. Mr. Ben Cross sadly passed away a couple of weeks ago. Now, obviously, we don't mention this fact in this episode due to when it was recorded, but it's now just our tribute to a pair of fine actors. Ladies and gentlemen, Chariots of Fire. A warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our programme. Britannia podcast, a very British podcast about very British movies with just a hint of professionalism. Good afternoon, Scott here with me at the other end of a Skype line. It's my good friend Stephen. Good afternoon. Afternoon, mate. Hope you're well. Very well. Very well. Looking forward to today's episode because it's it's almost a commemoration episode. We decided to to review Chariots of Fire because of the, the sad news that Ian Holm sadly passed away a couple of weeks ago now, probably a couple of months yeah. ago by the time this episode goes out. And I hadn't realised until I spoke to you that we'd actually done two of his movies previously. I remember Dance of a Stranger, but then you reminded me that he also appeared in Time Bandits, which... Yes, it's Napoleon. Yeah, yeah. the same year as Chariots of mm. Fire. So we were sort of cherry-picking between the Hollywood appearances and the TV appearances that he made to find a British movie. And I think we're going to be of the consensus that it doesn't get much more British than this. No, I mean, it, it, despite the character that he played not being British as such, yeah. but um, although I, I didn't quite, couldn't quite place the accent. But, uh, well, um, I'm going to talk to you about that. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> yeah absolutely. He's you know, sad loss um, and uh, a great career. Mm. And this is very much a, a British film, and um, I think it was timely to to do this when, t- to be fair, he was probably on the cusp in a way, and it wouldn't have been too long before he he dropped in. So yeah. um, to just give it a nudge up the schedule, we're not going to focus. Slightly. We're not going to focus too much on Ian Holm because he's no. not a major character in this in this movie. The story doesn't revolve around him, although he does play a pivotal part in the plot. So. Yes, when we get to the review in the second half of the show, certainly going to focus a wee bit on Ian Home amongst other things. Talking to British movies, I need to bring something to your attention. I did a little bit of digging this morning. I was oh, yes. I was editing uh, our Whiskey Galore podcast episode, which went out a couple of weeks ago now. And in it, we mention at some point this mythical 
thing that occurred in the mid-80s that we can vaguely remember called the Year of the British Film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you've mentioned it a couple of times and it's, it's, <laughs> it, we felt like it was only us two that remembered it. Yeah. <laughs> Quite rightly, because the internet doesn't remember it either. I had a little look, right? I've narrowed it down. It's 1985, Ooh. which is later than I remember. I remember it being roundabout chariots of fire gandhi sort of era and the only reference i can find on the internet to the year of the british film 1985 there's lots and lots of stuff on ebay and other sort of like um selling sites for the commemorative stamps that came out that year oh right i thought it would just be references to the sequel to 1984 but um so so it's commemorative stamps, yeah, you see, they can't erase them from history. No, so they, they're about, they're out there. And on YouTube, there's a 20-second clip of an animated logo for the year of the British film. And apart from that, I can't find any... I'm going to have to keep digging a little bit. Perhaps it's in the dark web. Who knows? Why? Yeah, why is it being wiped from history? What This is really suspicious. I'm, I'm starting to come up with some kind of conspiracy mm. theory that, about this, that there's, they're covering something up. Well, if there's no Wikipedia entry, that really sort of raises a few questions because there's Wikipedia entries for absolutely everything. Oh, yeah, I had one at one point. Is that um, Eco? <laughs> You had yeah. to get your lawyers in for that one, though, didn't you? To get rid yeah, of it. <laughs> I did, yeah, because you know everything they said was true. Um, <laughs> so it's bizarre, that's though. Down. So yeah, so um, yeah, so well, maybe you need to create yourself a Wikipedia author account and 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 start creating the page with all the details that you gradually gather so on we, it. We just have Even that, I'll do a podcast about it. I don't know. Which. <laughs> I couldn't the time for another podcast, for God's sake. But yeah, it's, it's bizarre, isn't it? We both remember it. Yeah. And it was a whole year of, of celebration. And I would say I remember it being a little bit earlier in the 80s than 1985, but the stamps were released in 1985. There was also, now it may have been a bit later, I'm going to really sort of test the power of your memory here, mate. BBC, in association I think with Rank, did initially something like a six, seven, eight part series called The Best of British. And it was narrated by John Mills. And it was on seven o'clock on BBC One midweek. And it showed everything from the Dan Busters to Powell and Pressburger to the Third Man, all those sort of things, lots of little clips, I think. And each episode focused on a different genre. So one would be war films. One would be romance, one would be crime. That exists, that is available. I've seen some of those on YouTube. But again, was that tied in with the year of the British film in 1985? Yeah, I've got a, <laughs> I do have a recollection of, of, of that floating around. Mm. The thing is that the 1985 makes more sense to me than earlier that you remembered it to be because with me being slightly younger than of course. you, um, of course, meaning yeah. that I would have let, I'd less recollection of the early 80s mm. uh, like that kind of thing but so i was i was that's why i was vaguely aware of it but not as aware as you yeah. at the time so 85 makes more sense but then i had this john mills thing i've got a vague memory of as well yeah and um that that is in my mind has been late 80s i'm thinking um, about when i was about 16 17 so that would have been 85 86 but 
Mm. Definitely exists. I've watched a couple in the last couple of years. I remember finding them online. Didn't it go on for? Didn't it go on for quite for like sporadically for for a while? Wasn't they? They did an initial run. Yeah, might have been a dozen of them, but then they did another lot, and then I think they focused one on horror as well. They did like a set on Hammer Horror or something. So I seem to remember there being a couple of series of it. Yeah, for some reason I'm sure it's Going called the best the of British. Yeah, and the, the titles had. Henry V, Laurence Olivier in them, and, and, you know, lots of sweeping sort of orchestral Benjamin Britten-type music, you know, all that sort of thing. Um, so that definitely exists. But this whole thing about the year of the British movie, the year of the British film, anybody out there that can lay something a bit more concrete about it, throw some evidence our way, because we know it existed. We, we, we've seen the stamps now. We know it existed. Um... But what was it about? I know it was just a general thing to promote British movies to the rest of the world. It wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if it was a slow reaction because of the the way that the establishment in this country is slow mm-hmm. reacting to things, that this was a slow capitulation and, and, and uh, capitalisation, I mean, and um, from the, 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 the Colin Welland, um, the British are coming. Yeah. Um, Oscars thing that they slowly started realizing that <laughs> four years um, later that, that, that they'd start developing something to take advantage of that, and four years in British <laughs> establishment terms is is the right speed in which to do that. Yeah, indeed. Um, <laughs> so uh, it wouldn't surprise me if there was some thinking of that that some committees got together after the Oscars win for Chariots of Fire, and then another committee of that committee. Um, discussed what that committee had decided and passed it on to a third, um, uh, and the, it, yeah, and they eventually then put something in order to come up with. You know, it it, it wouldn't surprise me that if this was some way influenced with trying to push that there was a, a resurgence in mm. uh, British filmmaking in a way in the early eighties. Well, this was um, the next bit of research that I did because knowing that Chariots of Fire won the Best Picture Oscar that year. I was racking my brains thinking, okay, how many British movies have won Best Picture at the Academy Awards? And not surprisingly, it's not that many. Okay. I'm going to run through them now, just before we go into the main review, just as a bit of a preamble, my TED Talk for this week. Okay. You're going to recognise all of these, and some of them I'm going to dispute that they are British movies because basically what happens is the Best Picture Oscar gets awarded to the producer rather than right. the director. So if it's got a British producer... I'll read through it. You'll see what I mean when we get to it. The first British movie to win Best Picture at the Oscar wasn't until 1948, and it was it was Larry for Hamlet. Okay. Right. But, <laughs> surprisingly also nominated that year was another British movie which was The Red Shoes Powell and Pressburger so what a, what a decision to make mm. between those two the next British um, winner of the Best Picture Oscar isn't until 1966 and it's Alfie no tell a lie the next British Picture winner goes to Tony Richardson actually it may be going to directors here I'm not too sure but Tony Richardson won it in 63 for Tom Jones so we're talking swinging That's London. unusual. Oh, well done, you. Well done, you. <laughs> um, oh, dear. So we're talking swinging London. You know, you, Britain was the focus of the world, wasn't yeah. it, at this particular period in time. So 
possibly quite rightly it went to a British movie. Five years later, 1968, John Wolfe gets awarded it for Oliver. Now, the 60s famously is the era, believe it or not, that the most musicals won Best Academy Award, uh, Best Picture Academy Awards, because it was West Side Story and Sound of Music also won in that decade. We then have to jump forward. Now, this is the one I'm going to dispute, because the award in 1978 went to Barry Spikings and Michael Dealey, who I'm assuming are producers, for The Deer Hunter. Mm. Because Michael yeah. Cimino directed... Mm. But according to this list on Wikipedia, I'm looking up British nominations and winners of, of Academy Awards. It, it said The Deer Hunter. So I'm, I'm going sort of to... I think over you might that. need to have a, to do a, a, a little bit of research at some point and create your own list that's a bit more... Well, the, the, the next one underneath it, which was also nominated that year, 1978, was David Putnam for Midnight Express. <laughs> So, Which relates to today. Yeah. yeah, but also that's more of a British movie than The Deer Hunter, as far as I'm concerned. Well, yes. <laughs> of course. So, of course, we get to 81 and Chariots of Fire. We get we have a run. The British did come for one year because the following year, 1982, Dickie Attenborough won it for Gandhi. So there was a there was almost almost a run there, you know. Um and in this run-up to 1985 that we've just been talking about, in 1983, Peter Yates got nominated for The Dresser. 84, The Killing Fields was nominated and A Passage to India. 85, The Mission, Putnam again, was nominated. And then in 87, The Last Emperor. It was English-produced, oh, right, yeah. English produced, mm. mostly Italian-made, shot in China, but... I think we class that as a British movie. I'm sure we will do. Which is also the year one of your favourite movies was nominated, Mate, Hope and Glory, John Borman. Oh. So there's, there is this this core mm. five or six years of, of British almost success. We are, British coming second is almost is always counted as, as a success anyway, isn't it? We're always the best at coming second. Um, but we are, yeah. I mean, it, we've <laughs> made a, a, an entire national pastime of that, I think. Yeah. And then, and then sort of leading up, you know, we, we've got The Crying Game is nominated along with Shine, Secrets and Lies, Dangerous Liaisons, Four Weddings, those sort of things. Britain does not win another Best Picture Oscar until 1988. No, sorry, 1998, and it's Shakespeare in Love. So we win there. David Parfit shared it with oh Harvey Weinstein, Edward Zwick. So jump. Don't really want to share anything with him, do you? Not really. Um, Not really. Two thousand and six is the next winner. Again, I'm going to dispute this because must just be a British producer. The Departed, which is Scorsese, uh, isn't it? Yeah. So British production, but we'll gloss over that one. This I think definitely counts. Two thousand and eight, Slumdog Millionaire. Yes. Yep, Danny Boyle. Yep, British cast. Danny Boyle and, yep. and Lottery funded, I think, as well, yep. wasn't it? Some and and Channel Four partly funded as well. Yep, so that definitely so, counts. Yeah. Uh, Two thousand and ten, King's Speech, which I'm going to count. But the same year, Christopher Nolan was nominated for Inception, and Danny Boyle, 127 Hours, was nominated as well. So you know, a, a little bit of a spike there. And the last major one. I'm going to include this, British director, 12 Years a Slave, Stephen Queen. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's on the cusp there, isn't it? Because it's a big Hollywood production. Brad Pitt also produced it. 
but hey, let's let's sing the praises of a British director for God's sake, Steve McQueen. So, um, and wasn't the lead actor? Oh, Chiwetel Ejiofor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go then. More than enough reason. I mean, tenuously we included. What did we include? We said was really tenuous a few weeks ago. To be to be considered British. Yeah, we reviewed um, Lolita. Yeah, just just because it had a couple of Brits in it and it was filmed over here. <laughs> well, it was filmed over here, made to look like it was filmed over there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was pretty much a majority British cast and yeah, etc. Yeah, so we make, um, we make up the rules. It doesn't matter. Yeah, and I think to be honest, I think our rules seem to be better than the the um, the, Wikipedia the Academy. But it's interesting, isn't it? When you when when Colin Welland says the British are coming, there is a little bit of a little bit of a spike in the eighties. But leading up to it, okay, you know, Hitchcock only got nominated in nineteen forty one for Suspicion, the only time, you know, for best movie. There's not much. There's not much there, mate. Powell and Pressburger only the once for the Red Shoes. Noel Coward for in which we serve. Charlie Chaplin, 1940, for The Great Dictator. Yeah. You know, yeah. they've all been nominated. The, the big names we expect have all been nominated at some point in history. But there's literally just on the fingers of one hand almost, you can count the best picture winners. Yeah. But then on the other side of it, I mean, you know, look at what other countries mm. have, have done and probably, you know, after after the United States itself, we're probably second on the list. Got aren't we? I mean, look at the um, what was last year? Parasite. You know, first yeah. time actually a foreign language film has won, isn't it? I believe. So. Yeah. Mm. And you know, obviously, we consider the United States has been foreign language, but um, in their use of English. But the um, yeah, I, I think that that obviously gives us an advantage. And but um, considering the the size of this country as what it is. Um, our creative output in that sense, um, either directors and writers and actors that are, are actually in um, American productions that are hit Oscar um, gold but don't get recognised as being British, mm. but you still have to consider that there's a, a massive influence. I mean, um, and even in pop, more popular culture, I mean, you look at, you know, the half the people who've, who've played Spider-Man and, and, and Bat, you know, and, and, and that have been British and you've got the, you know, half the Marvel cast of films seems to be British people <laughs> as well and, and stuff. So, um, true. very true. We, yeah. we, we, you know, we're, we're, our influence is there, even if it's not, it being pegged as being a, a, a British winner or whatever. So, um, but yeah, the, the, the thing about the um, best of British, um, series is is something in in the back of our mind, and you have been able to pinpoint there how there was a run of of, of the, the British actually worked did you know it did come in a sense it's, it's just needs a bit more delving into this um, hidden lost year of British film that seems to be um, <laughs> evading us a little bit. Yeah, it yeah. seems to be a conspiracy. If you start getting followed <laughs> down the street by uh, shadowy figures, you'll know you're too close to the truth. Yeah. It never actually happened, mate, as I say. It's, it's hidden somewhere in the dark web. We need someone to unlock it for us. So I'm certainly going to have another little look. This was just briefly having a look before we switched the mics on just a second ago that I thought, I'm just going to double check on this whole year of the British film. And, and I found the stamps. There's pictures of the stamps 
and as I say, this logo, this animated logo is on YouTube that was used to promote the whole thing. Um, there's a great website, Brit Movie, and I'm sure they've got some great discussion boards on there, and I bet it's mentioned in there, so I'm going to have a little look, at, have a little chat, probably post the question myself to the guys there, because they are the font of all knowledge at that website. So, Well, I look forward to an update. <laughs> keep keep it peeled. This does yeah. actually, you know, intrigues me. <laughs> We didn't imagine it. There, there is a little bit of evidence out there. I'm glad about that because there's all sorts of things I know I do imagine, but that this, <laughs> this I was pretty sure it wasn't one of them. Yeah, well, we both remembered it, so that you know, we both can't be. Well, we could both be going. Oh, we could, but it'd be <laughs> unlikely. Yeah, with such clarity. I'll tell you what we're going to do. Let's go back to 1981. Let's take a little break, and we'll be back after this with our review of Chariots of Fire. We are here today to honour the legend. And remember those few young men. With hope in their hearts. And wings on their heels. Chariots of Fire, released in the UK the 15th of May 1981, directed by Hugh Hudson, written, of course, the original screenplay by Colin Welland, starring Ian Charlson, Ben Cross, there's Nicholas Farrell, Nigel Havers, Ian Holm, of course, we will be mentioning, John Gilgood and Lindsay Anderson are in there, along with the great Nigel Davenport, Alice Krieg, now we need to talk about Alice Krieg, because I always wondered where Alice Krieg appeared from having seen her in Star Trek and things like that after this. And it was like, yes, there's a couple of Star Trek links in this. Is there? It? Okay, you can bring that to us at some point. Brad Davis is in it, Patrick McGee. Lots and lots of people, lots and lots of famous people. Let's talk about the synopsis very briefly. Eric Little is a devout Christian who believes that his athletic abilities are a gift from God. Harold Abrahams is an English Jew, a student at Cambridge, who dreams of fame and of proving to his anti-Semitic fellow students and to the world that Jews are in no respect inferior. In the process of achieving their goals, through all the obstacles and personal issues they conquer, they prove that striving for victory in their own terms is perhaps its own reward. Based on a true story, Chariots of Fire was the winner of four Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Original Screenplay. Can I just say, I watched this about a week ago it was my Friday night movie and I bloody loved it um, <laughs> and I don't think I'd actually seen it all the way through previously it's one of those ones nope I'm pretty sure it's one of those films that I probably started watching when I was 11 years old when it first came out on video and never got to the end of it I thought this was one that you probably had watched um, a number of times over the years, no. one that you might go back to every two years yep. or so. I thought it would fall into that category rather than um, no. I've watched it at, at least 
three times, I think, over the years, mm. over the decades. I've also, just as an aside, I've also seen um, the Oscar. You've seen the Oscar? Yeah. Where did you it's see in, the Oscar? Uh, the National Film and Television Museum in Bradford. Um, it's in there. Mr. Wellen's Oscar? Yeah, the, the are they Oscar allowed to, to do that? Because they're not allowed to, to sell them, are they? They're not allowed to sell no, them. No, so it's on loan. As far as I'm aware, ah, it, yeah. So it years. It was years ago. I mean, yeah. it was I don't know ten years ago. I mean, wow. and I was going to take you recently when, but we didn't have a chance. But yeah. um, yes. Uh, so yeah. I've actually seen the Oscar as well as seen the film, which is interesting. So, um, but I thought yes, you, you would have you'd have seen it more more often than me. But it turns out um, no. I, I watched it originally, no. or thought I'd watched it all originally. I've had the Blu-ray sitting on my shelf for about two or three years. And it's always, when it gets round to Christmas, I think, do you know what, that's a Christmas movie, I'll watch that. And I never, ever get round to putting it on, partly because of Ian Holmes' sad death, but also the fact that I needed to watch this film. I thought, do you know what, let's let's do this now. Let's just watch this Chariots of Fire and see what all the fuss is about. And I can see what all the fuss is about, quite honestly. T- to start with, there's an opening scene. Let me get this bit out of the way at first. You know how we've referenced many, many times before that a lot of British movies feature Trafalgar Square at some point in yes. in the narrative. The opening scene is a camera shot down St Martin's Lane looking at St Martin in the Fields Church, which overlooks Trafalgar Square. And to the left of that building, my office. You can actually I was say see. this is on your doorstep, <laughs> isn't it, I'm sure. So that's the first thing you see. Is, is my workplace is there on screen. I'm like, I, I, I walk down that road every day. You know, I knew it well. But when we get this initial memorial service for one of the other, I can't remember what one it is. Is it for Abrams or is it for Lidl? I don't know. It's for Abrams, it's yeah. It's for Abrams. Lidl um, died in, in a concentration camp in, in China. He did indeed, um, yeah. After this initial sequence at the memorial service, you get, Possibly one of the most iconic pieces of British cinema ever. It's been parodied and, you know, seen a thousand times before. And I forget, it's just the credit sequence. That's all it is, isn't it? Yeah, and the music obviously is a big part of it Mm. as well as the actual visuals of it. The visuals are very iconic and you would think just um, a bunch of guys running wouldn't, wouldn't stand out from any other footage of yeah. A bunch of guys running, but um, this seems to be the the image um, forever now of guys running and particularly running in in sort of slow motion mm. um, with with mud splattering up and <laughs> um, uh, and Van Gallis's uh, music is obviously a, a key part of that, equally iconic, um, which yeah. which continues to be used. I mean, it's in a recent advert um, on the television, I believe. Um, I can't remember what it's advertising, but mm. um, it is thanking sort of the iconic different people in their roles within the uh, keeping the country going through the pandemic sort of thing but right um so it's that it's giving that sort of the music is being used to um give this um patriotic feel to to in an iconic way um and this film is you know it, it is dripping with sort of patriotism without it being nationalistic it's just mm. you know, patriotic in that sense and the difference between the two but um but yes it's an iconic scene which everybody will probably know that 
footage, even if they don't, they've yeah. never seen the film. And that's maybe all you've seen previously when you've said no, you've only seen the, part of it. There's, there's um, two, two bits that I remember more than ever, and it's it's the run around the courtyard is the other the other scene, yes. which we come up to very, very soon. But just, just talking about Vangelis, I mean, it's it's associated with a very British, an achingly British film, as you like to say. But the music is written by a Greek guy, basically, who at the same time was probably writing the soundtrack for Blade Runner, which was about yes. the same sort of time. And you'd think... Given the nature of this story, the setting, the time period, that electronic synthesizer music would not yes. work. <laughs> it shouldn't yeah. work, should it? Um, no. And I must admit, there was a couple of bits later on where I'm thinking, oh, yeah, not quite appropriate having that sort of synthesizer music. Yeah, not in the middle of the Mikado, no. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah. But for this... And, and as I say, it, it screams the 1980s, but at the same time, when you're looking at guys running in a, in a sequence that's set pre-1920, why does it work? It, it makes you wonder, doesn't it? But it's, it, and it is almost stirring. It is very patriotic. And well, it yeah, should, and, it and I do be. think part of, part of it is that it um, fits better with it mm. because there is a certain amount of the sort of slow motion to them running rather than them being running at full pelt like yeah. would, like, would mm. be the what you'd seen. Mm. And that would be the, you would tie it more to reality and to the time, whereas the synthesizer music sort of brings you uh, out of time, as it were, mm -hmm. uh, of the reality of the time. It's not like later on in the film where there's a slow motion bit of them starting the race and they, they start in slow motion, but the gunshot goes off in <laughs> normal sound time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which amused me, but no, I think that is part of it. I think it, it, it it's another world in us which lifts it away from it just being a, a, a mundane thing of some guys running down a beach. Probably quite a brave move, actually. Mm. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. Trying trying to sell that to to the financiers or, or the studio. Yeah, well, we've got this this period piece set at the turn of the century. You know, very British. You know, but we've got this Greek guy who's going to do this synthesizer music over the top of it. Okay, <laughs> you know, imagine that conversation in the boardroom. Must have worked. Must have worked. He must have said something right. So, there are a few iconic scenes throughout this movie. We'll get to them as we discuss the plot. I mean, you've seen it now two or three times, three or four times. You go back to it quite often. What do you like about this film? Is it because it is so achingly British, or is it the fact that the performances are spectacular? By the way, in this as well, they're they are flawless. It's weird because uh, given a certain amount of time not having seen it, it mm. partially in my mind I, I, I partially in my mind I've got a, a different view of what it actually is when I've watched it and I, and I sort of look and think, oh, it's a long film that you know the plot is 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 not massively eventful that mm. it can be seen as being that there's glacial in its, um, oh, yeah. its its progress. Mm. And so there's a certain amount of time between, you know, the longer I have from watching it, the, the sort of look at it and think, oh, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to watch that um, today because I've, you know, I watch something that's shorter and has a bit, has a bit more eventful in it. Mm. And then, um, but at a certain, certain point I'll go, no, I'll watch it. And then I watch it and I go, 
Oh yeah, that's. I remember why it's impressive and why I've gone back to it. You know, um, so and I, so I can understand the criticisms that there are from some quarters about the the pace of it, not the running but the actual uh, yeah, running time. Talking about a cut version as well because there was a longer version apparently. But, was there? Um, oh, right, okay. Apparently, yeah. Um, although they did cut bits for it being shown on airlines and in in the states on oh, television apparently okay. as well. So it was cut down from that. But yeah, it is very very iconic. It is beautifully shot you can't you know and and the performances yes you might have some niggles about some of the the uh, like ian holmes accent i mean I, I couldn't place where he was meant to be from but um the performance itself though other than that was um and the performance of every actor in this i mean there was some amazing quality in the acting yeah um and in some of the extras as well that were just in the background but then the extras were very well paired because apparently they had somebody quite quite persuasive and and erudite who was acting as their <laughs> their union representative at the time who was um, that tell tell the story um <laughs> david putman and com, you know complains that the um the or not complains but he comments that the guy who was acting on behalf of the extras who mm. was an extra himself at the time mm. um managed to uh, persuade him um, to give them all basically it, it was like 50% more than the going rate um, <laughs> yeah. for, for what actors and that's why there were, there were sort of the performances <laughs> and, and everything from the actors they were maybe a bit more enthusiastic point, yeah um, and everything <laughs> yeah um, and that guy was, was a guy called Stephen Fry whatever became so, of that man eh? yeah mm. um, you know he obviously um, <laughs> you know didn't go beyond beyond that role but uh, there you go but yeah so the the, the performances across the board and um, the way it's shot as well I mean you know the, the um, that is is fantastic you've got some amazing iconic shots um, of, of what's going on not just in the the um, stadiums or mm-hmm. in the actual um, university campuses, but you know some of it we've just in the, the Scottish hillsides, yeah, um, as well. And you've got that variety in here. And I know there's there was some criticism from some quarters that it's basically two stories that are collide together, uh, enforced at the end that aren't really linked. I, I think that the the parallel story um, makes it work better rather than running it as two separate stories or only telling one of the stories mm-hmm. um, because the contrast between is is what what really makes it for me i mean i'm you know i'm not massively um uh in the level of, of patriotism and sort of you know jingoistic stuff with, with films particularly and i'm i'm not a big sports fan either the thing that actually attracts me with this film i think is more that it, it, this this the parallel story the link between the two is showing the the different approach between the two principal characters um towards the same end goal yep. and they've got they've got the the diametrically opposed ways of achieving it there's the professionalism versus the amateur angle but there's also that that one's motivation is theological mm-hmm. and the other one is is down to being more secular and about proving himself to be a, a justified member of society in the face of of anti-semitism really so i think th- those are the bits that why it works has been a, a two-hander as far as the, the parallel stories and that's what that development is what i think is the, what makes it win for me um rather than it just being a beautiful piece of period drama yeah um there, there was criticism you know and there still is about this 
two separate storyline thing or the bending of the truth, shall we say, because it isn't an accurate portrayal of what actually happened at the time. It is to the most most degree, but there's a couple of bits that have been tweaked which we'll have to pick up on. But even the critics and the people that have sort of naysayed this movie a wee bit can't dispute the fact that it tells the story bloody well, whatever that story may be. And the performances are absolutely superb and the cinematography is fantastic in this film. So no matter what your thoughts of the, the content of it, visually and narratively we have got a best picture winner here quite deservedly and i'm going to have to look up this one thing i didn't look up what what was in contention that year against charity uh, Legends of lost ark <laughs> right okay well that had a british cinematographer as we discussed previously exactly, yeah. <laughs> um can't remember what else what you were you know you were saying there about the how, how the, the parallel stories go along and and stuff and i think it's it, it's worth recognizing that it, it, it is not just beautifully shot, it is told well, and mm. the, the, the changes that they're, they've made to the actual facts, so it's, it isn't the true story, it's based upon a true story. Yeah, I think it, it makes it a more interesting story, but also I think it makes it, especially especially looking back now with modern eyes, I think at the time it wasn't necessarily um, going to be picked up, but it stands the test of time a lot better, that they've decided not to make it jingoistic which yeah. they could have done oh yeah they've decided they've decided to throw some um some extra light upon some of the things that there were done by people of other nationality whether it's the in-home character or abrams himself has been a, a first generation a second generation immigrant mm-hmm. or whether it's it's such as the united statesians with with their measured support whereby yeah. they could be held up as being the villains of the piece quite easily but they're not that they have chosen to include that rather than just dis, you know ignore it um which means it, it's not seen as being britain against the world as a as a thing it is that the fight or the the aim is to be winning a, a competition rather than actually you know beating other nations which i think works successfully with the way that they've, they've tweaked the story and it was done sensitively because, you know, there was the people who were involved who, you know, had their permission sought in order to change some of these details yes. who were still alive. So, yeah. they were, you know, they've, they've they've done all they can to try and, and work with it, um, including the, the the wife of the the Eric Liddell, mm-hmm. uh, Liddell um, character. Apparently her only criticism when she saw it was she complained about the depiction of his running style, which was the only thing they felt they sure they'd got right because they were basing it upon archive footage of him, um, which all the way through amused me beyond what it should have done, the way he was... No one, a a baby becomes a toddler and they just start... They have that wobble uh, with the wobbly hands. Yeah, and they pinwheel their their arms just when they're about to fall into the arms of the mother at the other side of the room. Uh, He ran with pinwheeled arms... um, and and the the head backwards, like what you yes. thought would created more drag with his mouth open like that. But mm. apparently that's that's a, a true depiction according to archive footage. But <laughs> I say there's a few well, bits like that that just amused me. Well, he obviously didn't have Mussolini training in, did he? So he uh... no, no. So he didn't have a, a correct form. 
um, in that sense. But, you know, the criticism at the time, apparently, of various things to do with his running, but it actually was successful beyond what say that this scientifically they should, they should been, do. So. He should not have been the success that he was with, you know, the running style that he had. And to, and to be honest, if the true story were to be told, it wouldn't have been half as interesting. No, some of the changes, you know, the the, the drama of the... not. To put any spoilers in there but there's a drama of the um his faith coming into conflict with competing on a, a certain on a sunday this is the, this is the crux um, of his story isn't it so it's which, not yeah not which a spoiler. Was, mm. was something that didn't crop up as a surprise it was known several months beforehand yeah. and the and and was discussed for months and a solution was got at it wasn't just an off-the-cuff sort of an emergency situation like it was portrayed as but they needed to put something in had a more urgency and and not quite jeopardy but almost because there wasn't because it's people competing to achieve a goal on the racetrack there and without creating villains of other people there, there wasn't really that peril or jeopardy that they could actually put into the, the the plot it wasn't like he had to achieve some one of them had to achieve something in order to save their scholastic career or their, their win the woman they love or mm. anything like this it, there wasn't that that jeopardy in there so creating a bit more dramatic tension by that was was the right move in my opinion oh, to I make it so. a, a better story to to watch even if it wasn't completely factual in that sense yeah. it kept it it caught the essence even if it didn't quite create uh, capture the exact details yeah for, for little to have found out that these particular heats were being run on Sundays, two three months prior to the game starting. Well, that's that's not a story, you know, because in real life he prepared for different events, didn't he? Because I believe he was due to run the four by one hundred and the long jump. I think he may have been. Was it him or was it Abraham's? Actually, had the world record for the long jump. It was Abraham's. This is something I found out. He he was at one point world record holder for the long jump and he lobbied anonymously to get himself dropped for the long jump so he could focus on his training with Musabini um, on the sprints so the Olympic, the British Olympic Committee dropped their best man at the long jump because of all of this and this is not mentioned in the movie and also the sequence of the events is also told in reverse because doesn't Ian Charles and Eric Liddell, doesn't he come second or third in the 200? I know it's Ben Cross, isn't it? The, the, the 200 was run before the 100. Whatever way it's depicted in the movie was was opposite to the real-life events. So yeah. you, you get the victory before the you know the loss in real life. But that's been done with a thousand different movies, mate. You know, this poetic licence. But it, it is a case of not necessarily rewriting history, but just reinventing it slightly to make it more visually... Attractive it's, it's not to, to the audience. extent of making out that a different country um, cracked the Enigma code or, or anything <laughs> yeah, like we're that. We're not or, going down that road, are we? Or, or, <laughs> that, or that you can you can fly a, a single seat a fighter plane from um, Hawaii to New York on one tank of fuel. Um, <laughs> it's, it's not Pearl Harbor is the um, is the best example of, of that, and it's not exactly. even like Braveheart, which has some anomalies in, but um, <laughs> poetic license. There's, you, we could go, you know, as you say, you could do a whole podcast about where there's an inaccuracies mm. from fact to actually, you know. But the point is, as you very often always say, um, it's the first principle is about whether these things are um, enjoyable. Yeah, would, would you want to see? You've got to entertain first, and then. 
if you can inform as well at the same time then fair enough these aren't set out to be documentaries if they were then fair enough it's it's right to pick apart any details like that but Mm. this is done as a piece of entertainment and what they've included and what they've changed i think is entirely um justified to create a much better film than it possibly could have been um and it took somebody like colin willand to um to be able to do that i think and with his pedigree and his understanding of nuances of, of of people as well as um wider context of society as it were so i think he's you know it it, it was it got the right result even if there are some naysayers about some of these nitpicky bits why did this capture the public's imagination at this particular time what do you think is it just one of those magical moments where everything just falls into place we were ready for this movie we were ready british movies notoriously you know the, the they didn't exist, you know, for the previous 20 years leading up to this. We had a bit of a spurt in the 60s, didn't we? You know, where, as we said previously, London was the focus of the world in the mid-60s. But but British movies weren't anything special. They weren't taking the world by storm. And No, I, internationally, I, no, I no. feel right. And, and I think, I'm going to get you to, sorry, but I'm just going to finish, I don't get you to answer that in a second. But my theory is, around about this sort of time, Handmade Films is riding the crest of a wave here, okay? Channel 4 is literally on the horizon the following year, Film 4, and the major investments that they would make to the British film industry. Goldcrest, all of these British production companies were, were suddenly getting funding and getting noticed. And this is the beginning of it isn't it i mean we may have seen it a little bit earlier with the handmade stuff earlier like the life of brian and the and the long good friday and all of those movies we've spoke about previously but the early 80s just seems to be a very exciting time for for britain to take on the world in the world of, of movie making yeah and i think that as you said there's the Channel 4 element that was coming into play um, with the resurgence and we've mentioned it a number of times before about films that we have come out of that stable along with Handmade Um, there's also internationally a resurgence in the the fact that I think because of the 70s being quite gritty um, in a lot of ways particularly in in the States but also internationally in, in the way that film and music and other things were were in some ways presented in some in, in bits and pieces i think that there was a, a a desire to look towards something else and one of the elements along with channel 4 and handmade and everything there's things like the merchant ivory stuff yes, of course, um, coming and into these, fruition, these, yeah. These, yeah and these grand um grand epics almost and period dramas which were taking people out of what was you know in the 80s there was um recessions and, and mm. unemployment rising and all these kind of things that the you know partially in the 70s and then the 80s and all these and modernity coming in in a big way with the silicon chip affecting people's lives and i think there was a certain thing of people wanting to look towards something in the past and this being a period piece as well i think inspiration. this having a period piece as long as it along with it being something that inspired 
um, in a patriotic sense. There's a number of elements I think just fell right, like you just said, just, rather than it being any one one thing thought, in itself. Sorry, mate, just thought of another one. The year before, 1980 Olympics, Steve Ovet, Sebastian Coe. Well, that'll probably be one of the main reasons, yeah, the Olympics happening, the um, success at the Olympics, and particularly in running, yeah, would probably have the yeah, captured the nation's... Yeah. Um, Zeit, captures the zeitgeist in yeah. that sense then yeah Didn't that probably would be one of, of the main elements i don't know when it's this started to be written and developed mm. i don't know but it's... didn't even think of that but that could have been another you know riding the crest of that wave from the previous summer because this came out in the may in 81 so as a, after this film was released you had sebastian co and steve ovet recreated the courtyard did they scene, oh i think i might remember that on the news at some mm. point yeah yeah so I'm pretty sure that was after. I mean, if that was before this film was made, if they did that Perfect immediately marketing. after the Olympics, before this was made, it would have it would have been the catalyst for them deciding to look at the story of the two original guys who'd done that, yeah. and then therefore. Hmm. Who when knows? They did that, then. It seems to be a bit of a perfect storm, doesn't it? When you you, yeah, you yeah. take all of these factors together and you think, well, yeah, this was, you know. Colin Wellen probably was quite right to stand up on that stage and say the British are coming because he's got all of this behind him thinking, yeah, we're actually achieving something over the pond here. You know, we're actually got a bit of movement here. I think there was probably tax breaks as well, wasn't there, that I think, um, to encourage... You know, because like Pinewood was the major studio. Things like Raiders of the Lost Ark were filmed over here, weren't they, in the Star Wars movies, and they still are. Um, yeah, yeah. So the British film industry, even though we weren't churning out British productions, we were responsible for a lot of the stuff that was being screened internationally. Um, I've just spotted another bit of trivia. I just looked up what else was in contention for 1981. Okay. Um, and it was Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, also, it was Reds, the Warren Beatty one, which was expected to win, or On Golden Pond. The, the Fonda's, you know, the Fonda's movie was expected. And Atlantic City was also in contention. But appearing in this movie, again, looking at the pedigree of some of the, you know, the the sub, um, the subcast, you've got John, John Gilgood as a cameo almost. Did you know John Gilgood won an Oscar this year for Best Supporting Actor? No, I didn't. For no. Arthur. Oh, <laughs> So even though he appeared in this, he won the Oscar for Arthur, which I think is brilliant, actually, his performance in that is so funny. Um, yeah, it's it's just a very unique period in British filmmaking history that we always tend to sort of gravitate towards, don't we, mate? I know we talk about handmade films quite a lot, and we talk about film for... Um, if you were to go through that period from sort of 79 to, say, 89, 90... That is a wonderful treasure trove of great British movies. There's probably some dross in there as well, but there's some real fine classics in there that we haven't even considered, mate. I mean, I know you've got a few lined up from that particular era, but I was looking through things that I'd forgotten. I know Mona Lisa will probably come up at some point. We've done with now quite recently, but things like Brassed Off we're going to touch upon. Um, Bellman and True is one that I'd forgotten about that was a handmade production that we've got to look at at some point. Um, and the Merchant Ivory stuff. What you know, we, we could do a whole podcast just on this 10-year period. There is a whole podcast to be made about the you know, period 
dramas um, mm. and we've as we found out with uh, Man for All Seasons that not all of them are no, as successful the as they actually no, um, no. get the recognition <laughs> for. but there were some in the opposite way mm. to be honest there were some that um, are period pieces that um, either either deserve more notice now because they've never really had the notice or ones that had more notice at the actual time of them being released but have been forgotten a bit mm. um, which is The Wicked Lady yeah we loved that absolutely loved um, that didn't we yeah yeah, um, which was you know at the time was massively popular, but then faded into into history to some extent. Yeah, there's a whole glut, and I mean we do you know from this country we do period dramas particularly well. Um, but I'm just thinking, not necessarily period dramas. I'm I'm talking from this period in time, this this eighties period. Oh, there, yeah, if you, yeah, there's a whole podcast to do about eighties film, um, as you say, and eighties British film. This is the thing. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. a it, it's. I think if we looked through. The list of films that we've done, we'd find that um, we've done a lot. Actually, eighties is probably eighties is and eighties and maybe I would say fifties. Yeah, eighties and fifties are probably the two heaviest decades that we've um, Mm. we've done. Um, And to be honest, I still think it would be eighties over fifties. I think it is slightly possibly. Mm, I think it is. I know Nathaniel, one of our listeners, did a little bit of um, a chart a few months ago working out what the, the, the what period of, of time we'd covered the most and it was 80s was at the top and I think 30s definitely came out bottom because I think we'd only covered the 39 steps uh, and the later stuff obviously but 80s has certainly got a precedence and the 50s is a close run second as we move further now into our kitchen sink series the 60s are going to start picking up and the carry-ons have now hit 1960 and the Norman Wisdoms so that decade will start building and building over the next few months. Um, we're not going to intentionally pick a decade, though, are we, mate? We don't. We don't intentionally go right. Well, we haven't had a thirties movie for a while. Let's pick one from the nineties. No, no. We but, as with all of our picks, we, it's more just what feels right for us and mm. and things that crop up in our mind, thinking, oh, yeah, I want to review that. Whether it be Maybe. genre or whatever, it's like, okay, yeah. we've had two heavy movies in the last couple of weeks, let's have something a bit lighter. Yeah, or... and that's more what it is rather mm. than us going, you know, having a, a schedule of going, right, 80s, 50s, yeah. 70s, 40s, yeah, we, we, we're not, 60s, we're and, not and, and have, it, you know, have it all scheduled <laughs> in that we, like your, your, um, your sort of Wheel of Fortune thing where you're spinning it and you're going, right, it has to be a film from, mm-hmm. um, yeah, we could, we could and, the, and the category like it is, yeah. Um, we couldn't work like that. We wouldn't enjoy it. I think it's not necessarily spontaneity. It's, it's more sort of like, okay, well, you're as guilty as I am of this, mate. You you sit and review a movie with me on a, on a Saturday or a Sunday, and you sometimes have not made up your mind what the next movie's going to be until we finish talking today. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and Am I right in thinking you've narrowed something down? Or is that, is that time open? Round. At this time around, yeah, but sometimes, um, well, very often, I'm in the case of being that there's two two films in mind when we start recording, and by the time we've got to the point where I'm announcing what mine's going to be, I've, I've narrowed it down to one. But I, I did actually narrow it down um, to earlier on today to that one, thankfully. But okay. um, certainly, yeah, we 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 have all all of you know that going on. But and sometimes, as you say, there's various elements of why things feel right, and with this one based upon there being a catalyst and it's not the prime motivation but the catalyst of Ian Holm so sometimes it's the actor or the director that might for some reason spark in our mind oh well you know we'll 
try and do a film that's that's got yeah, need to some involvement with them, which mm. we've done this time round, um, which you know thankfully is bringing Ian Holm into the um, Hall of Fame. Should we just talk about Ian yeah. before we go into the Hall of Fame? Because this is mm. this is the catalyst. I mean, yes, mm. we could not work out what part of the UK he came from. <laughs> It'd be safe to say there was. If you had to pin it down, where was the accent from? Well, there was, there's times when the accent sounded like it was meant to be either Yorkshire or, or Lancashire. Yeah. Um, but then there was bits where it did sound like it, it might be from, like, Wales or Devon. Um, it did drift but, a bit towards sort of Newcastle as well at one point, yes, didn't it? Yes, there was bits in there, which is strange because the actual real life, he, he, was, um, he was part Arab, part um, Italian. <laughs> Um, in equal measure, but actually born and raised in London. Wow. Okay. Um, so where uh, I don't know, uh, maybe it's like Eddie Eddie Izzard when he's trying to do an impression of, of Sean Connery doing an impression of James Mason, where it just ends up <laughs> a complete amalgamation. Isn't yeah. It? Skip, yes. Scipio Africanus Musabini was his real name. Um, I'm just looking this up now. He led athletes to 11 medals over five Olympic Games, but he was not officially recognised because he was a professional coach, wasn't he? He was born in Blackheath, London. There you go, yeah. Of Syrian, Turkish, Italian and French ancestry, the son of Aileen Farkat and Neocles Gaspard Musabini, educated in France and later followed his father into journalism. In the 1890s, he was a professional sprinter for five years, blah, blah, blah. Okay, who knows? Who knows? But as for Ian Holmes' performance, the accent aside, it's it's not a major role. He's not one of the lead characters, but he certainly stands out because he is a character in this. He's not over the top. He just does the job competently. And, and he's, he's one of the things you take away from this. You don't necessarily take away Ben Cross or Ian Charles and you think, yeah, actually, I quite liked Ian Holmes' performance in this. Because the character isn't isn't a controversial one, he isn't thrust into the the high drama. The character himself is there in a supportive role. It's not about him. All everything he does in this is none of it is about him. There's no ego. There's no tantrums from him about him being this already well-established um, trainer that could you know stamp his feet and and be quite deaverish about you know I'm yeah. I'm the one that knows you do what I say there's none of, there's no arrogance in any of it he's just completely supportive all the way through in some parts when he's you know he interacts with Abraham's girlfriend you know mm. he actually says you know sort of kind sort of kindly things and actually has a bit of a, a little joke with her almost and stuff mm. and so he's 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 very much a human character but only in a very small part on the screen so there's nothing controversial about about him but it just does humanize i think a little bit the the entire um thing because i suppose it could be quite could be quite dry and quite technical if you just showed somebody just um training to to run um if you didn't have this um in some extent, a, a caricature, I suppose, you know, he's, a little bit of a way as well. He's like Mickey, um, to, Mickey to Rocky, isn't he, almost? He's, yeah, yeah. He's that sort of thing. And isn't there a point, I think he actually says, is it something about he's a bit baffled as to why Abraham's actually needs a trainer? He says, to you mm. don't need me. You are the best of the best, almost. You know, you don't need me. But then when you go into the real-life story of of what was driving Abraham's, you know, it wasn't the fact, apparently, that he was Jewish, 
this is something I read up on earlier. His, his, his desire to win in Paris was fueled by more of a rival with his brothers. He had two older brothers. Um, one of them competed in the 1912 games, which I think were in Stockholm. And basically, they were really good. They were better than him. And it was more of a family rivalry than a religious sort of like drive. That, that oh, right. Yeah. And, and when you look into it and you're thinking, okay, well, that story actually is quite interesting. You know, if they'd have played on that rather than the Jewish side of the thing, that would have made equally an interesting story. But it's fascinating when you look into this, both as the cinematic telling and the real life telling from everybody's point of view, from Musabini's, from Liddell's, from Abraham's, from all the people involved, you know, even the wives, the girlfriends, the the staff at the college. That's a great little subplot between Lindsay Anderson and, and John Gilgood, you know, watching over and, and mm. commenting and, and just judging. And yeah, it did all you get, comes sorry, from, just to interrupt, did you get when they first arrive at the, uh, the, the college? Mm hmm. And um, they're basically, you know, signing themselves in the Porter um, oh, guys. Oh, Richard Griffiths. <laughs> and we've got Richard Griffiths. The, the character, mm. um, not the uh, Abrams character, but the, the, the other guy, yeah. um, who's Aubrey Montague. Yes. And he's, you know, refers to him as Monty when yeah, he's I saw that. Yeah. speaking to Uncle Monty <laughs> from Wibnell and I. Um, Did spot that made me chuckle, going, oh, it's Monty again. Yeah, yeah. I forgot so. he was in this completely. So, Yeah, two films in a row, eh? Well, um, talking of two films in a row, talking of Ian Holm, I can hear the keys jangling in your pocket, sir. Let's take a walk up the path and open up the Hall of Fame and let's get somebody inducted in there today. Okay, the Hall of Fame is wide open. Who are we welcoming in and who's got second appearances and 28th appearances? There can't be many, mate, can there? Let's have a look. Well, the, the, no, there's, there's not a lot in this. I mean, Colin Willand will start off with yes, uh, yeah. because obviously he's he's had um, two writing credits now and he's also previously had two um, acting um, mm-hmm. appearances. So really, this now you know really should have already been in a combination of, of the two, rather than waiting for free um, in either of those categories. It this should is be fine. cumulative. This is, yeah, it's, it's a big nice. one. He won the Oscar. Yeah, it's, it's a big. Let's face it. Yeah, he deserves <laughs> it for, for the Oscar alone. Really. Yeah. So yeah, so it's great to to have him in a story that could have been incredibly you know dry and not interesting when you just describe what the plot is to mm. somebody. You probably wouldn't think it was engaging, but he made it engaging enough oh, to, yeah. to to make a film of two hours and you know more so credit to him mm-hmm. absolutely so as you said ian home gets his finally gets into the village hall of fame unintentional yeah. the, 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 for him to be in on this particular one celebrating you know the man's life or whatever uh, it's happy circumstance happy absolutely. circumstance indeed yeah excellent yeah very welcome um, yeah and we've we've got a, a guy called jack smithhurst <laughs> i know jack smithhurst James Meadows um, was in Love Thy Neighbour. Yeah, who <laughs> in the film was um, the train porter who wakes him up in the right, you know, the Scottish um, yeah. guy in the middle when he works. You know, so this is his third appearance. <laughs> that's, um, that's a bizarre one, Jack Smithers. So, yeah, so we, we've got that one, thankfully. Um, there's a guy called John Young. 
mm. um, who's now had his fourth appearance. Okay. Um, he was in in the Scottish scenes. He was um, the sort of elder priest. Um, okay. Character. So you probably wouldn't you know recognise him off off face of that, but fourth appearance. We've also got um, there's a guy we've mentioned before. His name is Guy Guy Stand even. Yeah, I remember this. Mentioned yeah. before, yeah. Who's had multiple appearances and and background characters in in this? He was a butler. Um, okay. Stood on the sidelines, <laughs> so you wouldn't have recognised him. But this is his ninth appearance. <laughs> Incredible. Whoa, he must be pushing for. He's pushing top. near the top. There's a couple. There's a couple of them with nine or ten, obviously, and he's one of the these top ones a, around that that area. So the only other thing to mention about the not Hall of Fame as such, but about the the cast is obviously we've got a number of faces in there that we recognise mm-hmm. um, from our cultural life over the past um, decades in this country. Yes. Um, when we've got the, this is a first screen appearance for both Stephen Fry and Sir Kenneth Branagh. As students, um, and Stephen Fry yeah. was in the opera scene, wasn't he? I believe he was in the opera scene. Yeah, yeah. He, he was there as long as we've been uh, the the union shop steward for the. He also <laughs> was was there, um, and we also have a, a, a small appearance of somebody who's not British, but is certainly yeah. part of British culture, which is Ruby Wax. I spotted her in the crowd. Um, we mentioned her a couple of episodes ago when we were talking about girls on top. Yeah, in the Whiskey Galore episode. Yeah, so, um, Richard Griffith obviously reappearing, but not not having made his enough appearances yet. But yes, there are a number of there's quite a few faces in this. To be fair, that we recognise from other things, from other things. Well, there's another yet, one. There's actually... another one. Ted Robbins was the shot putter, the comedian yes. Ted Robbins, Kate Robbins from uh... Phoenix Nights. Yeah, yeah. And as we said before, I, I made allusions to there's a, a bit of a Star Trek connection. Yeah, in what was that? Um, you mentioned that um, the girlfriend of um, Abrams, uh, who uh, had yeah. appeared, she, um, Alice Krieg, mm. her name is, um, she was in the, the story plots with Patrick Stewart. She was the, the Borg queen. Yeah. Um, but also, um, we also have a link from Ben Cross himself, who plays um, Harold Abrahams, who was... Um, he was an alien the, thing, wasn't he? He was, he was the, the father of Spock. In oh. the more recent films, yes, got it. So, um, so there's a, a couple of Star Trek links in there, which is is quite quite interesting. But yes, so as I say, we've managed to at least get Ian Home in there. I mean, not to not to knock down uh, Jack Smith first at all, but obviously we were. <laughs> you know, um, Ian Home is a bit more recognisable as a as a I name, particularly so. with his recent um, yeah. passing. Yeah, especially for movies as well. So Patrick McGee was in there. He's not he, he he's not worrying the doors of the Hall of Fame at all then, Patrick McGee. I'm sure he must have had one appearance. Patrick McGee before. has already been in um, previously because I believe he was... Was he in... Uh, Patrick McGee, mm-hmm. um, he was um, in A Prize of Arms. Ah, and that's previously. the only one. Okay, yeah. well he will appear. My, in my head, for some reason, I had him. I had him that he was also in uh, A Man for All Seasons, but apparently, yeah, yeah. Or I thought he might but, have been um, Lolita because he was one of Kubrick's favourites, McGee. He's on the edge there, but um, he hasn't. He hasn't made it in. He's waiting yet. in the wings. Okay, there's one that confused me. You're gonna have to point this out. I saw his name in the credits, and I'm looking at his name in the credits now on IMDb. Michael Lonsdale. Now, apparently, yes, um, that my understanding is his scene was cut. But he appeared in the credits? Yes. So it wasn't me 
imagining that I hadn't seen him or missed him, blink and miss him. For those that don't know, Michael Lonsdale, probably best known as Hugo Drax in Moonraker, the Bond film. Mm. He was in, was it Howard's End? Or no, it's Remains of the Day. Mm. He's in Remains of the Day and I think he's the police officer in Day of the Jackal. I'm sure that's Michael Lonsdale. And I saw his name come up at the end and I thought, I don't remember seeing you. And I've just seen him here in the credits. So you're pretty sure he, his, his part was cut. But you said there was a longer version floating about as well, wasn't there? There, w- there were some deleted scenes, yeah. Mm. Um, I d- I don't, I'm not aware that the, um, the extended versions have ever been released. And I mean, if you, if it was, mm-hmm. um, all the, oh, the deleted scenes were available to be seen. I would assume they would be on your Blu-ray, those not, deleted scenes, but no. they're not, as far as I'm aware. I don't think they've ever been released, these deleted scenes. And maybe there's a, a perception that two hours and five minutes was long enough. I remember reading at some point that, um, and it wasn't to do with Chariots of Fire, I was reading it, I was reading to do with him um, on, for some other reason, and I remember reading that he was his scenes had been been deleted. Why he was still credited is, is a bit of a mystery. I don't know if there's something yeah. contractual with that, because um, mostly I think there's a number of people who are in this film who haven't been credited who are actually in it, so why you have somebody credited for being in it that isn't is um, it's just down to to contractual things and he was a big enough name to actually have a credit in that sense mm. but um yeah so you didn't blink and miss him he, he wasn't okay that'd be interesting so you, you're not going completely no well well they're, they're, that's up for debate before you finish that sentence mm. um yeah. <laughs> which is your film eh? <laughs> I, i'm just skimming through imdb's trivia to try and see if there is any sort of information relating to that but i've just found the Steve Ovet, Steve, um, sorry, just found the Steve Ovet, Sebastian Co reference that you were talking about, mate. It was six years after the film. It was eighty-seven. Right. Trinity College reenacted the quad dash with Ovet and Co taking part. Nigel Havers acted as starter, and at lunch after the event, the dean confessed it had been a great mistake not to cooperate with the making of the movie because it wasn't actually yes, filmed. Yes, because it. they didn't actually film it in yeah. in the, and it wasn't the only bit of non-cooperation. There was the the Nigel Havers character had to be renamed mm. and and made to be somebody else basically because um, the uh, the actual real life person, um, Lord Bur- Burley, Lord Burley, Burley, wasn't it? Yeah, Lord Burley um, mm. didn't give permission, which apparently after seeing the films that he wish he had a bit late by then really. Yeah, so there was a few bits of permissions and things like that which they had to change around and, and do some reshooting I think and, and change names and things but hey her that, you know, yeah. it still didn't detract from the film as far as we were concerned. Further trivia, very quickly before we wind this up, it is Ian Holmes' only Oscar nominated performance. It was named as one of the twenty most overrated movies of all time by Premier magazine. <laughs> Oh dear. Uh, one of a bit of trivia that um, blink and you miss it. Um, it's one that I, I I quite like um, because I only spotted it when I watched it last night. Mm. Um, I hadn't ever spotted it before. When they're in France and they have the um, the Scottish Presbyterian Church yes. and they have the service, you see the outside of the church and you see the 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 signage that says about when the services are on and things. Yeah. And it's saying about that service starting at whatever time it is. Mm-hmm. And it, it says about the opening reading or, or something like that um, by Colin Willand. It says on the sign outside. Yeah. 
Oh, fantastic! I'll have to screenshot that. And see I can't remember what it is. I can't remember what it is. It's it's opening reading or yeah, um, or something like that. I don't know whether that's included in in the, in the I trivia. Can't or not. See I, it I read it somewhere yeah. previously before watching it last night, and suddenly it clicked at me. In good enough time, I remembered it in order to actually look rather than after the fact and gone. Oh, so yeah, I, I, it's in there somewhere because that was something I had already always wondered why it was called Chariots of Fire. Um, Jerusalem, isn't it? Yeah, because originally um, Colin Welland had, had, didn't know what to call it and just called it Runners, um, which is maybe <laughs> not quite as expi- inspiring in the imagination as as a name of a of, of a film. Um, runners, yeah. really? Um, you wouldn't, you know, go. Oh, flocked, yes, that's a that's a very patriotic. Yeah, Runners. I'll tell you what, people would have flocked to have seen if this had come about. So Sean Connery was offered a cameo, but had to turn it down when filming on Outland overran. Oh right. And you talking about um, deleted scenes. Scenes of Eric Liddell courting a Canadian woman in Paris were cut from the movie. She can be seen in the church audience when Liddell is preaching and sitting next to Sandy McGrath during the final race. She's presumably a surrogate for Eric Liddell's real-life wife, Florence McKenzie, who was from Canada. She and Liddell met several years after the 24 Olympics. So there's definitely scenes filmed. And... The producers intentionally added profanity to the movie to avoid a G rating because they thought people associate a G rating with a movie for kids. Ah. Summing up, I mean, as I said at the beginning of this show today, it's the first time I've watched it properly, so it was almost like a first-time watch. You know, it's one of those cases of a movie that you think you are so familiar with, but all you've seen is the sound bites and the pop culture references and the things that everybody has seen. I remember having the DVD, well, the video at home, because I've told this story a thousand times about my stepfather being a video pirate in the early eighties. And it was one that, yeah, it was one that they watched and I must've sat and watched the first 20 minutes, half an hour. And in my brain, I've seen the whole film. I've seen it a thousand times. I haven't, I haven't at all. It um, is longer than half an hour. And <laughs> um, that is something we should caution people of. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's well worth it. I, I cannot praise this enough. I've, I've very it, nearly watched it again this morning, and I watched it a week ago. Yeah, mm. it's, it's a film that I understand some people might not want to go back to too often because of mm. the length of it and because mm. it's got it does have a, um, a more glacial plot development. And there might be some people who are put off because they think they don't want to watch a sports film or they don't want to watch a film that is this jingoistic thing, but that's not what this it's is. it's not, is it? Um, all, and you no. base your, your ratings upon... The entertainment you get out of a film, so your rating that you're going to give is will, will a, is, indicate... Is, 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 is a five. <laughs> it's a five. There you go. It is a five-star movie with regards... I sat, I think it was last Friday, put it on about 8.30, knowing that it was you know not going to finish till gone 10 o'clock or whatever, and I just thought, you know what? There was more to this film than I watched. You know, I'm thinking, this could have had another half an hour. I was quite happy to to sit and watch that slow pacing because I wasn't 100% aware of what I was letting myself in for. I knew there was going to be racing at some point in it. I knew there was going to be runners, okay, put it that way. I knew there was this conflict of the religious aspect, the Jewish side of the story. Um, I was vaguely remembering this whole amateur professional sort of thing because of the Ian Holm involvement. I'd forgotten people like Lindsay Anderson and John Gilgood were in it. The only thing, as I said briefly, 
a little bit of the Vangelis music didn't seem right in certain places. A more orchestral score probably would have been better. But it certainly didn't detract from my entire enjoyment of the movie. And looking at the other contenders in 1981, a deserved Oscar winner, a deserved win for Colin Welland. Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't fault it, mate. Couldn't fault it at all. Over to you. As I say, I think that your assessment there is, is you know, it deserves a certain amount of iconic status. Mm. Uh, for me, it is one that I, I'm reluctant to go back to too often, mm-hmm. um, and that's not not what some people might be put off by the, the length of the film, although people that's more usual now than it was back then, um, yeah. and not the, the pacing of the film either. But it's more so that I think it's one that it's best watched when you don't have the familiarity with it, in my opinion. If, I think if I've forgotten some bits, then going back to it, it, it enables it to hold my interest um, a lot more keenly, and I enjoy that more yeah. um, from it. But I think the iconic status of it, not just as a British film, but just as a film, if you're going to be showing people's personal progress to achieve a goal, rather than through rivalry, but for their own purpose... Rare, very rare there's examples of anything that does it better than what this does it deserves a watch by virtually everybody really I would say at least once in their life really it would be recommended that they, they watch it and it is a beautiful film and it is a mm-hmm. incredibly well acted film yep. um, finely scripted as well it's it's worth people going out their way to actually see not necessarily on the big screen because it's not of that scale no, where it needs to be no. seen in that detail but certainly i would recommend people go out their way to to catch it and watch it at the right time though like you've said mm-hmm. um in a situation where there's not other things going on that might be distracting you noises going on outside or it's sunny weather and stuff like this it is a film that i think you know for for a rainy afternoon or a, a, a winter's evening, it's a Christmas movie. Just settle, as well, as just settle down and just—it's it, it, almost an event movie, isn't it? It's what, what they call an event movie, almost because mm. it is a Best Picture winner. It has got some major stars in there. It's got a lot of awards and accolades. It is iconic. It's—it's it's a classic, basically. There's another word for it. It is a classic movie, and quite yeah, rightly, it's very much with the Oscar bit box checklist oh, really yes, but, it was there yeah but i don't think it was intended to be i don't think so i think it was just the case of colin welland had, had written this script and it just became what it became um and quite rightly quite rightly okay that's chariots of fire 1981 the choice is yours next time, my friend. Favourite part of the show. Let's take a little break. I'll tell you what, let's have a bit of Vangelis while we're waiting. And then when we come <laughs> back, I'll meet you on the beach, mate, and you can tell me all about what we're watching next time.
was Chariots of Fire from 1981. As I say, I might actually go back and watch that very soon. Stephen, it was my choice, Chariots of Fire. So that means it must be yours. What have we got lined up, mate? I love this bit because I'm, I'm on tenterhooks. I've got no idea where we're going. I'm assuming, having recently done With Nail and I 1987, this one from 1981, we're going to avoid the 80s. Yeah, um, it's... <laughs> pretty sure this is a film you have seen but then i thought you'd seen chariots of fire so <laughs> i'm starting to doubt things now <laughs> but as you've alluded to you, you know me quite well and and it, this isn't going to be a, a film from the 80s about the 20s and mm. um I, I even failed to manage to find a film about the tw- you know made in the 20s about the 80s oh. so um we can't go that way so what i've done is is an unsurprising to you i'm sure mm-hmm. is i've decided to pick something that is equidistant between the two Ooh, so okay. it's a film from the 50s <laughs> <laughs> as if as if we you know we, we should do more from the 50s do more <laughs> 50s and 80s yeah and i've decided not to do a costume drama either as well to to avoid that are we going so, comedy um, we're going comedy in the 50s yeah well it's 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 comedic okay. it's also a, a police procedural a kind of day in the life of well, it's not Carry um, On Constable, is it? Obviously, it's... no, no, no. Um, <laughs> it's it's written by the great T. B. Clark. But it can't be on yeah. the beat because I'm sure that was later. No, it's got Jack Hawkins in it. Okay, well, it's not, and it's directed by John Ford, who um, we've recently had some involvement Ooh, with in Stinking Paws. Because I was so... looking up some John Ford stuff, obviously, when we reviewed Searchers recently on the Stinking Paws. Yeah. yeah. So he, he decided to move away from doing a western and decided to, to move to doing a um, police procedural in, in, in London. I'm stumped. Um, right. You couldn't really give me any more clues. What is it, Mike? The English title, because um, it had a different title over in the States, yeah. the English title was Gideon's Day. And again, that rings a bell now. And over in the, the States and yeah. elsewhere in the world, it was known as um, Gideon of Scotland Yard. But, um, wow, okay. yes. Ooh, you've picked a real, not obscure one as such, but one that I didn't think would crop up because I, I've not seen it. Oh, surprised at that. Gideon of go, Scotland hopefully. Yard, 1958. Here we go. Yeah. yeah, it's got comedy in it, but it's it's mainly a, a pr- police procedural and it's, oh. it's just it's a bit more lighthearted in some senses, but it's, it's got some light relief as well as the actual hard bits of police. I can see it now. I can see it now. Okay, this looks interesting. Um, Looking at the cast, I think you've got some people knocking on the Village Hall of Fame Yeah, I do think I'm going to have a bit of uh, (laughs) Hall of Fame thing going on, yeah. I like the sound of this. There's there's some very famous names in here, actually. Certainly familiar to us. Yeah, there's certainly plenty of um, familiar faces. and Honestly, there's a lot in this cast list, mate. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot. Yeah, I'm going to have work done, but at least I know it's not going to be John Ford. It is, it's, this is, I think, one of the... I don't think he did a lot of British films. Oh, I certainly didn't do a lot of modern-day, at the time, modern-day British crime. Can I just can um, I just say, klaxon alert here, Victor Harrington's in it. Yeah. <laughs> That was unintentional. Uh, well, it just can't yes, be helped, can I it? actually think that from um, <laughs> my, my recollection of it, I thought that Cyril Chamberlain was, was in it. Not Cyril Chamberlain, um, um, Dixon to Doc Green. Jack Warner. 
Jack Warner. I was sure that Jackson, Jack Warner was in it as a bit part as well, just as one of the other policemen wandering he, around he, he in the station. He played every single piece movie. of paper, but yeah. he doesn't seem to be credited in the um, things. So. Uh, no, Jack Watling's in it, um, who we've seen before. Lawrence Naismith's in this. Michael Hayter's in this. Michael Trubshaw as well. Michael Trubshaw's another one. Eric Bond. Yeah, uh, there's a number jo- of them. So. John LeMessurier, all my life. This um, Just based on that cast list... I mean, the plot, I don't know. I'm going to read up on it. I'm going to go and find myself a copy today. Yeah. T.B. Clark as the screenplay, as you say. John Ford, that's intriguing. That is yeah. really intriguing me. John Ford doing a 1958 UK police procedural drama slash comedy. Which is written by the guy who did, you know, Passports, Pimley Coat. Even, and, even comedies, and, yeah. um, Bit of an odd one, have really, seen, in that it? sense. Um, it's a one that I'm surprised, considering the names attached to it, you haven't seen. So hopefully it will get a, a positive review oh, from you. Hopefully wow. all the sum of its parts will actually work together rather than um, well, not hoping. quite achieve. So hopefully yeah. I'll hear what you think of that when I, we uh, record next. I like that idea. I like that idea a lot. Have you seen it yourself? I have, yeah, I've okay. seen it. Twice. Oh, okay. So that's a good indication of what I let myself in for, I've, yeah? Yeah, I saw it about six months ago. Mm-hmm. I saw it for the second time. And the first time I saw it was quite a while before then. I'd caught it, I think, more so. I don't think I'd seen it in entirety the first time around. Maybe that was it. And okay. when I caught it fully last year, about six months ago, six months ago um, or more, I thought, oh, yeah, I want to see this properly because I enjoyed the bit I'd seen before. So Excellent. I'm looking forward to that, mate. Brilliant. Gideon's Day, 1958. Stephen, thank you for chatting all things Ian Home and Chariots of Fire today. Looking forward. We managed to avoid doing it in slow motion. We did. In fact, we we had quite a quite a long conversation about yeah. that today, as well as the stuff we were rambling on about Oscars and stuff at the beginning. So, always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. Looking forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks' time for this one. Take care, mate. See you very soon. Take care. Good luck. Thank you. Shand up, sir.